Hello and welcome to Alexandra Marshall Live. Now there is no question that in this modern, progressive and unhinged era of radical collectivist politics that we need culture warriors. Culture warriors that are prepared to resurrect those great ideals of liberty, free speech, small government and traditional values that built the greatest civilization in history. Unfortunately, our civilization is crumbling under the leadership of half-wits, ideologues, lunatics and the power-hungry who are leaning into the worst parts of last century's socialist civil wars. Today we bring you one of our culture warriors. As president of the Australian Jewish Association, former deputy secretary of the Australian Medical Association, a medical graduate, political writer and commentator, Dr. David Adler has been on the front line of Australia's toughest cultural questions. David joins us now. David Adler, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Alexandra, and I've been looking forward to an opportunity of having a discussion with you, so thank we've, you. We've been looking forward to it too. Now, of all our culture wars we have to fight in this country, the most pressing in Australia right now is the potential introduction of collectivist race politics into the Constitution, the creation of what can only be described as an ethno-state. The Voice to Parliament referendum has been called for October 14th this year. Now, David, as President of the Australian Jewish Association, are you nervous about Australia dividing itself by race and attaching not only political and monetary power to race, but also spinning the narrative that one race has a greater spiritual claim to Australia than another? Uh, you're spot on, Alexandra. And we have looked at it from a number of perspectives. And let me say, I think this is an absolutely abhorrent proposal. Uh, it's incompatible with our values. Uh, I remember uh, reading about and learning about the actual black liberation movements of the 1960s and onwards. And the Jewish community played an important role in standing up for black rights, for equal rights, for fighting uh, apartheid in South Africa. And there are pictures of Martin Luther King, perhaps the best known uh, black liberation warrior, uh, with Jewish leaders, including carrying a Torah scroll, marching alongside with him. So we think that his message, uh, which was of course in his powerful I have a dream speech, that people should be judged by the content of their character, not the colour of their skin, uh, is really important. It is a message of equality. It is not a message of division. Uh, we think that if he was alive today, it's a bit speculative, that he would be appalled at reintroducing uh, racial divisions in a society which uh, over many decades has actually got rid of the racial divisions uh, in this country. Certainly there are some disadvantaged Aboriginal groups that deserve assistance, but to uh, amend our constitution, to have uh, in our political processes uh, a race-based division, we, we think is outrageous. Um, if I can continue on, it's, it's also contrary to Jewish values uh, and Jewish experience, uh, and our organisation is actually advising the Jewish community as well as the wider community that uh, the correct thing to do uh, is to vote no against racial division and certainly look at programs which are targeted and uh, assist disadvantaged people with, based on need, not based on race. Well, you've actually made a great point here, and that is people seem to have gotten themselves confused between what we used to call as black activism and equal rights, because what was called black rights were actually equal rights, but now that is being misused to say that somehow people who are already equal in this country need additional extra rights. Now, those two things are very different, aren't they, David? The, should we have always called black rights equal rights to avoid the situation? Yeah, I, I think that uh, that was the theme when there was disadvantage uh, amongst black communities and we've got to acknowledge uh, a history where there was uh, some disadvantage. The campaign, the leaders were campaigning for equal rights. They understood the importance of equality. And if you look at 
uh, some of the fundamental principles upon which our society is based. And whether you're religious or not um, is, is not an issue. But the whole uh, Judeo-Christian concept that all people are created in the image of God uh, is a message of equality. It's not a message of division. And we think that our laws and our constitution should treat every Australian citizen equally. Well, interestingly, the exact same thing has happened with women's rights. We went from having equal rights to this aggressive feminist movement that started to want to push men down and for men to have less rights or fewer rights than women. So we're seeing this activist politics play out in very similar ways as we go forward. But as many have pointed out, including former Prime Minister John Howard, Treaties are between sovereign nations, not races within a single nation. Now, everywhere that has tried these Indigenous treaties, they have caused increasing anger, disunity and a breakdown of the democratic process. New Zealand and Canada are perfect examples of these collapsing democracies. Does it concern you when you see prominent speakers, including within the Jewish community, cheer on the creation of treaties between races? Uh any division between uh, people in a civil society uh, is wrong, whether it's based on race or ethnicity or religion. And actually, one of the things we can bring to the argument uh, is that the Jewish people through history have possibly lived through more divided societies than anyone else, uh, whether it's ancient times from ancient Egypt and Rome and Babylon and onwards through to the modern incarnations of the former Soviet Union and, of course, worst of all, the Nazis. So if you believe in learning from history, there is not a single example you can point to where such divisions based on race or ethnicity or religion has been a positive. It's always been harmful and occasionally disastrous. So I think that... Uh, some of the Jewish leaders who you've alluded to, who are uh, arguing in favour of this, are misguided. Uh, they're misguided from the point of view of Jewish values, and they're also misguided in not having learnt the lessons of history, which say that uh, such divisions are never good and sometimes dreadful. Well, look, the alarm bells for me started ringing with the inclusion of land rights. Now, when you start talking about taking land out of public hands and placing them into the control of racial groups mm. and then prohibiting other races from entering that land, as we have seen in multiple national park lockouts in New South Wales, where parks that people pay for through their taxes and they used to love to frequent are now out of reach because their presence in them offends the spirits of the land. Now that for me is an extremely dangerous pathway. Do you think that is going to start to cause animosity between Australian people, particularly for those who've lived on the land their whole lives and suddenly are being told, you can't go to that beach, you can't go to that mountain because you're literally the wrong race? Uh, 100%, uh, Alexandra, as, as an Australian citizen, I, I believe that we should all have equal rights to public spaces. Uh, I can tell you, and I don't mind admitting publicly, that as a kid, uh, I climbed Ayers Rock and also as a young adult I climbed, it was Ayers Rock then, not Uluru, and there were Aboriginal people around. Uh, some would act as guides if you wanted to, uh, to tell you about the, the heritage significance of the area. And whether it's a place as prominent as Ayers Rock, Uluru, or any other place in national parks, it should be enjoyed by all Australians. Uh, I believe that we can practice our own religion and faiths and beliefs, but not to the point where it adversely impacts uh, other people. You can believe in whatever you want to, uh, that's fine. If you want to believe in a rainbow serpent uh, inhabiting all the rivers of Australia, uh, that's fine, but just don't tell every other Australian that they have to be restricted because of your beliefs. 
That's very well said. And uh, while I was not old enough to climb Mayor's Rock, now Uluru, I did get to climb through Kings Canyon and to walk around the Olgas. And they are beautiful, spiritual places for everybody, no matter what your heritage is. We are all Australians and we should all be able to share in these magnificent mm. places. But uh, you're also a wonderful writer, David. <laughs> and you wrote in The Spectator Australia an article about history teaching us that radical division never ends well. Now, not only is Australia seeing the raised fist of Marxism infiltrating Indigenous culture with the toxic and violent ideology of collectivism, we see Palestinian flags flying alongside Aboriginal flags. I've always found it bizarre for so-called progressives to tolerate this, given that Palestine is one of the most ideologically backward and oppressive regimes toward women and LGBTQ plus people in the world. Now, these are strange bedfellows. Should we be worried about Indigenous politics merging with Palestinian politics? Uh, well, I can tell you we're worried about it, and it's one of the major arguments that uh, we're using to advocate a no vo vote. Um, and there, I have to draw a distinction between the radical inner city activists and those that are in the remote communities and, and actually in need. It is inconceivable that those that are suffering in remote areas would be sitting around the campfire debating Middle East politics. And it's, it's not part of it. But your, your observation about um, ignoring the human rights abuse in some of the entities that surround Israel in Gaza and in Judea Samaria, which the left likes to call the West Bank, um, it's, it's mind boggling. I'll, I'll give you just two 30 second stories. Uh, there was a gay Arab man who was living in an area governed by the Palestinian Authority. Uh, he sought asylum successfully in Israel and had been in Israel uh, under protection for some months. He was kidnapped by his Arab brethren, taken out of Israel back into Palestinian Authority territory and had his head cut off. You will never see that in the mainstream media. There was a case of a young woman in uh, northern Israel, an Arab woman, who, uh, because of her sexuality, felt threatened by her family. She made it to a women's hostel and, uh, in Israel, and her family, her brothers, uh, tracked her down and shot her, uh, killed her. This is a so-called Islamic honour killing. Now, if you ask those in the political left why you're not concerned about this, uh, you get blank looks. Uh, and whether it's uh, LGBT rights or women's rights generally, or education or kids not being uh, pushed into terrorism, um, it's extraordinary. And Israel is the only stable ally that Australia has, uh, that the West has uh, in the Middle East. Um, we should be very concerned that uh, the voice, uh, given the radical activism that we've seen and the alignment uh, between some of the radical Aboriginal activists and uh, Palestinian activism, uh, could cause pressure for uh, Australia to take certain moves uh, against the interests of Israel and against the interests of the um, Jewish community because Israel identity and Jewish identity are, are inseparable. So we think it's a big deal and it's one of our major reasons for advocating a no vote. Well, you wrote, and I quote, the voice proposal is contrary to Jewish values, contrary to important lessons from Jewish history, and presents potential, serious, specific, adverse policy risks for our community, end quote. And yet many in the Jewish community have been caught up in this whole voice idea. Hmm. Now, it's not only 
religious community, it's like the Jewish community is not the only religious community to be caught up in it. Christians and Catholics alike are waving yes banners around. Now this reminds me, David, of what we have seen across the West where our churches have been adopting radical gender ideologies such as drag queens reading sermons and, blend, and blending the paganistic climate change messaging into their services. So my question is, why are churches cozying up to these dangerous Marxist ideologies who, if they were to win, would erase the churches the first chance they get? Well, I, I certainly can't speak for the, for the churches. I find it extremely odd that uh, we see the abandonment by some of the religious leaders of important uh, Christian values, Jewish values. Uh, and it is something that has happened uh, through history. Uh, biblical history shows us that um, it has happened from time to time, that they abandon uh, important values. Uh, again, it never ends well. Uh, a society is in decline when it abandons its foundational values. But take it a step further, uh, Alexandra, we have uh, political leaders and I suspect some in uh, the churches as well, who would struggle with the question of what is a woman. Uh, we have uh, radical gender theory being taught to kids in schools. And, uh, you know, a bit of a debate as to whether they can have puberty blockers or even uh, gender mutilation surgery. Uh, without parental consent even. I mean, th this is, this is mind-boggling stuff. There is, if I can put on my medical hat for a moment, a foundational medical ethic, which in Latin is primum non nocere, which means firstly do no harm. So let me call out also, uh, in addition to those religious leaders, uh, members of the medical profession who are participating in this are breaching a foundational medical ethic of firstly, do no harm. Well, this is not the only culture war that Australia has fought in recent times. Now, while lots of people want to move on from the COVID era, there are still thousands of people fighting for the right to return to work whilst being unvaccinated. But not only that, our states are riddled with laws that expanded the power of premiers and enabled what can only be described as the worst abuse of citizen rights in modern history. Now, David, do we need to go back and remove some of these expansions and power that were created during COVID before this happens again or before they are misused in a way even worse than what we saw the first time? Uh, Alexandra, I, I'm, I was shocked by the way that the medical profession and our bureaucrats uh, took such an extremist authoritarian approach to managing COVID, like no other illness. Uh, it became clear very early on that the group most at risk were the frail aged, particularly the frail aged in nursing homes. I don't believe that there was ever justification for uh, clamping down on children, schools, playgrounds, uh, some of the worst excesses that we've seen. One of the articles that I wrote for The Spectator magazine has the title, uh, Lockdowns Need a Smackdown, uh, during the, the lockdown period, uh, putting the case that the lockdowns were doing more harm than good. Um, we saw it very quickly in uh, mental health issues, uh, people uh, suffering depression, anxiety, um, even an uptick uh, in suicides. There was some data which showed an increase in alcohol consumption. But I don't think we've seen the end of it. We had uh, 18 months, almost two years of disruption of routine medical services. And that means that uh, for example, men who needed a routine colonoscopy to check for bowel cancer might not have had it at the usual time, but it's delayed for six months, 12 months, 18 months. Women with their breast screens, all, all sorts of things. And 
I wouldn't be surprised because there's often a significant delay in the diagnosis of cancers that we see a growth in the emergence of cancer morbidity and mortality because of the lack of early detection during the lockdown periods. This is such a huge issue. No doubt in my mind that the excesses caused more harm than good. The only area where it's debatable, whether the mandates or uh, restrictions were justified um, would have been for the frail aged in, in nursing home. That's a debate, I don't know uh, the outcome. But amongst the average person, say under 50, under 60, without significant comorbidities, they should have been allowed to go about their lives. And I think anything that is restricting that today should be removed. Well, I wanted to ask you something specific. As the former Deputy Secretary of the Australian Medical Association, how do you feel about some of the comments that we saw out of the AMA during COVID? And I want to read just one to remind viewers about what sort of things we were hearing about the opinion of the unvaccinated. Now, the AMA said, and I quote, you won't be able to hide. You will be miserable. You'll be le you will lead a very lonely life and you will not be able to maintain your employment, end quote. Is that appropriate for a medical association to be saying that to citizens? Uh, look, the, the AMA has lost the plot. Um, I should add, it's also lost most of the doctors. Uh, when I was there, uh, we had close to 70% of the doctors in Australia uh, as members. Uh, let me tell you, it's now about 25%. So an organisation making that sort of statement, be clear, it does not represent the medical profession anymore. Uh, it's become more of a, a leftist political activist organisation than a comprehensive uh, champion of professional standards and, and rights. Uh, interesting, there's been some pushback in the medical profession. I don't know whether you've heard of a, an organisation called AMPS, A-M-P-S, short for uh, Australian Medical Professional Society. And it's emerged to uh, represent those doctors who put primarily the interests of the doctor-patient relationship and their patients and professional independence as uh, high priorities. It's too early to say how much traction uh, they have, but I can tell you, and I should declare uh, personally, uh, I am no longer a member of AMA. Uh, I am a member of AMPS. Well, AMPS are friends of the Spectator Australia and they write for us frequently in championing medical freedom for not only their doctors, but for patients as well. So if you want to read them, go and subscribe to the Spectator. I'll get my little thing in there. Uh, look, David, let's move on to one of the big challenges facing us right now. And that regards these censorship laws that Albanese is putting in. Now, let's not forget that the, the misinformation and disinformation was originally a child of the Liberals, Scott Morrison, and now it's being repackaged by the Labor Party. For better or worse, we're not quite sure. Now, we keep being told that these kinds of censorial legislation are meant to increase trust and to keep citizens safe. Now, that was the same excuse that was used to silence victims of COVID vaccines and public health measures during the pandemic. Now, does silencing criticism increase trust in public health, as the government claims, or does trust have to be earned? Um, Alexandra, it will come as no surprise <laughs> to you to know that um, I think that the misinformation, disinformation uh, proposed legislation is abhorrent to democracy. Uh, and it's also uh, contrary to Jewish values. Um, we believe that uh, debating ideas, putting forward ideas uh, is really important. It's how Jewish academic development has occurred uh, over the many centuries. If that legislation had existed, I would likely personally have been vulnerable to its provisions. And I'll give you one specific example, and it is published in The Spectator. Uh, very early on in the pandemic, uh, Scott Morrison was Prime Minister, and he recommended 
something called the COVID Safe app. You would download it on your phone, and he even said it would protect you to the extent of sunscreen going out in the sun because we could identify contacts and do all sorts of contact tracing and identify cases, etc. Um, by April 2020, I had published an article uh, explaining why the government's promises concerning the COVID Safe app could not be delivered. Now, I won't drill down into detail for that, but concerning the uh, information laws, it would have been quite possible for the government to say, this app is important, here is someone criticising it, uh, it might discourage people from downloading or using the app, uh, it might cause harm, therefore you are in breach of the misinformation, disinformation laws, and the penalties, as you know, are potentially enormous. Uh, I think this is horrific legislation. Um, if you want to have a debate, a country that can discuss ideas, almost by definition, a debate requires someone to put forward a proposition that is correct and someone who to put forward a pro proposition that might be incorrect. Provided you're not advocating harm to people or property, uh, you must be able to do that. You must be able to talk it through. You must be able to bring proofs and counterproofs, etc. And sometimes what is regarded as true today, what is regarded as, uh, you know, government correct uh, in future will be demonstrated to be false. And Australia has a number of uh, other examples in the medical field, perhaps the most prominent uh, is uh, thalidomide. And many people will remember that thalidomide was the drug of choice for nausea in pregnancy. And the, the you know, safe and effective recommendation was that if you've got somebody who's pregnant who has bad nausea, prescribe thalidomide until, of course, it's linked with very severe birth defects in uh, preventing the development of limbs. And we have uh, thalidomide babies still alive today with, you know, these contracted well, uh, little limbs. Well, let's be honest here. If that was to happen in today's world of highly politicised medical speech, anybody who said my child has been born with a deformity because of what I took and what say the World Health Organization recommended, you'd be called a cooker, you'd be called a conspiracy theorist, you'd be called all manner of things. You'd be deleted off Twitter and the government would not listen to your criticism. That's how our current system of speech works. And I don't think it's helpful for uh, the medical industry either or for the truth of medical, because if the medical process is fine, it has nothing to fear from spe free speech or investigation. And on that point, I wanted to ask you, free speech is dangerous to those who are trying to spin propaganda, free speech is dangerous to political careers that have been built on policies that have bad ideas behind them. So David, are we seeing governments around the world crack down on free speech because they're worried that all their bad ideas will be killed off or if, you know, if people like you and I are allowed to rant about them on social media? Well, I, I think you're right, and, and particularly your last comment, uh, Alexandra, um, because of the internet, because of the open communication, you can pick up your your phone or go to your computer and have a discussion with someone anywhere in the world or a group of people uh, anywhere in the world and sometimes a very large group. And that sort of communication is not directly controlled by government. So I think this is threatening to those who have ideologies of control who are very concerned about uh, controlling information and power. The most authoritarian places in the world with North Korea um, and China uh, being, I guess, major examples. I couldn't believe it when the pro former Prime Minister of New Zealand, Ardern, said, you know, we shall be your sole source of truth. I, that is craziness. And go back in history, and it used to be called book burning when uh, information 
was not available, obviously, on the internet. It didn't exist then. And so how did authoritarian uh, regimes such as the Nazis uh, control the information, regulate their propaganda, if there was a philosophy that they did not approve of, such as Judaism, they would burn the books. Well, the problem with today, of course, is that we, we don't have books anymore, so you can't see the smoke coming up from the book burning piles. Things are deleted and edited very quietly on the internet and no one is the wiser. I don't know if it's happened to you, but I certainly know when I go back to check certain stories, they're gone. All the Wikipedia entries have been changed. It's extraordinary how much information is being erased without anyone knowing about it. But free speech completely dismantled COVID propaganda. You know, there, there are people alive today who will receive compensation for their injuries because Elon Musk allowed them to speak on his platform. Imagine what that sort of power will do to the climate change narrative, because, you know, the existential apocalyptic rhetoric of climate change, or is it global boiling, they now call it, that is... Uh, it's got a religious feeling to it. Um, so David, is censorship being used to protect what amounts to a lucrative religion? After all, if the sky doesn't catch fire and the seas don't rise, people are going to want to say something about that and they might even want their tax money back. Um, yeah, I, I think it is challenging to uh, vested interests, uh, certainly. And it's, it's just so important that uh, you know, organisations, people are allowed to voice their ideas, are allowed to articulate uh, their evidence. Um, an another area where it's being used recently, Alexandra, is we've seen, particularly in the US, uh, some pushback on the uh, gender theory in, uh, in schools and parents will get up at school boards and challenge them. Uh, the only way society advances is if ideas are brought forward and challenged, uh, whether it's on climate change, whether it's on COVID, whether it's on um, gender issues. Uh, you know, the, the usual red line for people who advocate free speech is that you're not inciting harm to other people or property. Um, uh, and it's, you can't have a liberal democracy without free speech. It is something else. And uh, that's why I think that um, Australia is at a crossroads. Um, some uh, philosophers, social ph philosophers, use the term um, postmodernism. Uh, postmodernism, uh, I, I think, is a bit of an oxymoron because usually if you're referring to modernity, it means advancing. Um, but I think we're at a turning point that you could almost call post-democratic. Uh, if Australia adopts racial division that we were talking about with the voice proposal, if we do adopt disinformation, misinformation laws, then you have to wonder whether indeed Australia can continue to describe itself as a democracy. I think it's that serious. It's also disappointing that, uh, I mean, we all expect the Labor Party and the Greens to lean into censorship. I mean, that is the root of their ideology. They are big state ideas. But to see the Liberal Party and the National Party not only support some of these measures, but to draft the policies themselves, we've got a problem there because it's not just the misinformation and disinformation bill that came out of the Scott Morrison government. We also had a terrorism bill a while ago, which had very little to do with terrorism and a lot to do with silencing and controlling political dissent. And we also had, uh, during COVID, the secret national cabinet, where we've now got our government going to extraordinary measures to hold secrets that are in the public interest, that are not dangerous to Australia. I think that whole you know, national cabinet is more to do with embarrassment of what the politicians were doing rather than keeping anybody safe. This conspiracy of silence that we've got going on, propped up by the Liberal Party, is a concern, isn't it, David? Because if the Liberals have abandoned free speech, who is left to fight for us? Look, I think uh, the Liberal Party has been, as an institution, extremely disappointing. There are some very good people in the Liberal Party. Uh, 
but there are also others that are probably in the wrong party. Uh, they're behaving more like Labor or, or even Greens. So when it comes to uh, climate change, when it comes to energy policy, when it comes to, well, you saw what happened to Moira Deeming in, uh, in Melbourne uh, being expelled from the Victorian uh, Liberal, Parliamentary Liberal Party. Um, you know, very often you're scratching your head and thinking, what does the Liberal Party stand for in 2023? Uh, I think Peter Dutton, uh, having, after a period of time, taking a stand uh, against the voice, supporting the no campaign, uh, provides a glimmer of hope. Uh, they've started making noises that they might consider um, looking at nuclear energy, another glimmer of hope, but they've got a long way to go. Um, I know Alex Antic is a friend of uh, The Spectator and he's done uh, some great work trying to uh, get the South Australian Liberal Party uh, back on track. New South Wales and Victoria uh, have quite a way to go. Yes, well, all of our comments about the Liberal Party come with, uh, but not Alex Antic at the bottom, right? <laughs> just assume that when we're talking about it. I just, you're right about Peter Dutton being on the right track. I just wish that he didn't have to be prodded with little pitchforks to get there. You know, that he should be moving out on these issues on his own, not being herded through the, you know, the farm gates on these things and, and being tempted with bales of hay, right? This should be his own thing. But the one, the one good idea with free speech is that it allows us to hear when a dangerous idea is on the rise. Now, after everything that's happened in the last 200 years, you would think that the world would have learned its lesson about anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. And yet we have seen religiously motivated attacks in Europe and across the West against Jewish people emerging. David, first of all, is anti-Semitism on the rise, particularly in Europe? Uh, it, it seems to be on the rise worldwide, Alexandra. It's, it's pretty scary. Um, some people are saying that the, uh, the handbrake that was provided after the Holocaust um, is now becoming a, a bit of a memory, uh, a distant memory, uh, that education in our schools and universities uh, has declined such that the lessons of modern history are not being understood. Uh, we've seen a rise in Australia as well uh, in, in incidents, uh, occasionally violent, very often, uh, you know, graffiti and online abuse and, and other abuses. Uh, sometimes there's a, a crossover between uh, anti-Israel activism, anti-Zionism into uh, anti-Semitism. It, it's changed uh, over, the, over the years. And you've got to ask, question, you know, what is driving this? And there's a number of things, but I, I, I'll raise with you something that's quite deep. Uh, and that is that if you represent an ideology that is opposed to Western civilization, if you're pursuing socialism or communism or, or, or something similar, then you are also going to be opposed to uh, the values upon which Western civilization stands, uh, often called um, the Judeo-Christian values or Judeo-Christian ethics. And again, whether you're religious or not, um, these are the values of uh, Western civilization. And both the Judeo and Christian side uh, began uh, in Israel. Um, and of course, the Judeo began before the Christian. So that's why I think we see, um, whether it's conscious or unconscious, uh, that the Greens are the only political party in Australia that have rejected the gold standard definition of anti-Semitism, which is developed by what's called the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, the IHRA, Every other polit political party that has considered it, including Labor and Liberals, um, have endorsed it. Greens have rejected it. Uh, and it's also why we see some of the policy shifts uh, against Israel in, in the left. Uh, 
it's occurring um, in an ugly way on some of our educational campuses, particularly the universities, and um, we're hearing all the time that Jewish students on Australian university campuses are hiding their Jewish identities um, so as not to be harassed. I mean, that's, that's a pretty sta sad state of affairs. Well, the Human Rights Watch posted an article in 2021 warning about this, and while articles love to say things like, the hate is coming from the far right, when you actually read the detail on each violent incident separately, it almost always centres around a pro-Palestinian protest, a Palestinian migrant community, or some other religiously motivated attack. And it has gotten so bad that the European Palestinian mission in the UK, along with Muslim leaders in Europe, came out to basically say that the suffering of Palestinians must not be used to justify hate against Jews. Hmm. That is how bad the situation has become. David, in your view, is there a, a deeper religious problem coming here as we have two groups of ideologies coming once again into conflict with each other in Europe? Because before, we didn't have this conflict of religion in modern times, and so this is a new thing for us. Uh, look, I think that is a factor. Uh, the anti-Semitism comes from a number of angles. Yes, there is an extreme right, uh, the neo-Nazi type ideology. Fortunately, it's relatively small uh, in Australia. Um, you've got the political left. Uh, it does exist in the Greens and the left wing uh, of the Labor Party. And then I think you're alluding to it without naming it, which is um, the Arab Muslim uh, ideology as well. There is an element in Islam, not everyone, but there is an element which harbours uh, anti-Semitism, uh, which harbours uh, hatred of the only Jewish state in the world, which is, which is Israel. And of course, the numbers are, are much larger than the Jewish community. We have something of the order of, I don't know, uh, 700,000 uh, Muslims in Australia compared to 100,000, maybe slightly over 100,000 Jews. Um, there's a political equation here. Uh, about 15 federal seats are influenced by the, uh, the Muslim vote. Um, maybe one seat uh, turns on the Jewish vote. Uh, so... Yeah, well, it's, 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 it's an historical problem because everyone knows the parts of the world have had this issue for, for many hundreds, if not a thousand years. So it's not as if that there's a secret this is going on. But very few people in the modern world, particularly in places like Australia, that have been so far removed from Middle Eastern conflicts that I think a lot of people here struggle to understand that these conflicts can be imported and some of the radical ideology can also come along with it. And that seems to be a struggle for our modern politicians to deal with politics that actually comes from a completely different place in our minds that they're just not acquainted with. Is that why they're struggling? Um, yeah, we've seen uh, some quite radical uh, people brought to Australia um, to advocate this. Uh, there have been some radical hate preachers. That's one on the way at the moment. Uh, the Adelaide Festival uh, had, I think, six or seven uh, talking about uh, Palestinian activism, none representing the Jewish-Israeli perspective. Uh, it, it, it has infiltrated our culture and our political um, dialogue. It has become uh, more influential. Uh, there is money uh, associated uh, with it as well, uh, Alexandra, and uh, it's going to need some, some good political leadership to keep Australia's policies on, uh, on Australia's interests and to deal with these um, social problems. And very difficult, complicated political problems as well. So maybe some politicians who are well-read in the industry might, might help as well. But reading from the European Union in 2022, 
They say that 50% of reported anti-Semitic acts were committed in Europe, with 30% being in the United States. Now, these included vandalism, the desecration of graves, propaganda, and of course, violent attacks on individuals. Now, you rarely hear about this in the press, but I want to give a few examples so that uh, people here know what's going on. UNESCO, uh, sorry, UNESCO, for example, keeps saying that education in the classroom is the key to stopping these attacks. But I'm not sure they're right that just education alone can fix this. Do you think that this violence stems from people not understanding the Jewish story or, you know, Holocaust deniers? Or is this coming from somewhere else and we need to uh, think about other ways to reduce this hatred that's going on? Uh, education certainly plays uh, a key role. Uh, but it's very difficult when uh, they're getting um, the opposite, uh, when they're getting fed uh, toxic messages and hatred. Uh, there is a lot of anti-Semitic conspiracy theory uh, on the internet. Uh, there is some being advocated in uh, certain religious institutions and uh, the parents uh, play a, a critical role. Uh, it's, it's a long road. Um, education uh, is important uh, and uh, having the right tools in all our institutions uh, is important. I mentioned the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism. Um, we uh, know that the major political parties support it in principle, but they have not implemented it. Uh, it needs to be implemented uh, at our universities, uh, in our um, law enforcement agencies, uh, and the like. Uh, so, yeah, a, a way to go. Um, uh, unfortunately, I think it's probably going to get a bit worse before it uh, gets better. But unfortunately, I think you're right. I mean, hmm. just so that people understand, this is not some conspiracy theory. We've had the following, just, just a handful of some examples. A Jewish man wearing identifiable religious clothing was stabbed to death in the French city of Strasbourg in 2016 by an attacker shouting Islamic slogans. In 2012, an Islamic gunman in France reportedly wishing to avenge Palestine's children killed seven people in Toulouse, including children and a teacher at a Jewish school. An Orthodox Jewish man was stabbed in London in 2020. A rabbi in Belgium was stabbed and earlier four were killed after a shooting at a Jewish museum in Brussels in 2014. Now, there is a pattern here, and it's a very tragic one, and the Jewish community are right to feel concerned, and also that it may not be being addressed, and your organisation goes a long way into helping that. How can people support the organisation that you currently chair? Uh, look, they can uh, access our information. Uh, the biggest forum that we have is on Facebook, so you simply look up uh, Australian Jewish Association uh, on Facebook. Um, we have a website as well where you can uh, subscribe to uh, the emails. Uh, if someone felt inclined to actively support, uh, the website has a donation option uh, uh, also. And we believe as in, in free speech and conducting um, uh, discussions with, with important people. Uh, our guest uh, next week, we hold events every Wednesday evening and our guest next week is Moira Deeming. Uh, we're prepared to tackle uh, things like women's rights and uh, gender issues and we will be discussing that uh, next week. Some of our events are focused on uh, Israel or general politics and um, we play a positive, active role in uh, advocacy and debate and discussion in uh, Australian politics uh, and, and more generally uh, on issues in which we feel we can, we can make a contribution. And uh, let me have a message of hope, Alexandra. Well, just, just quickly, before we go, you've mentioned Moira Deeming. Yeah. And there are some brave voices standing up to protect women. And one of them is, of course, the Victorian Liberal MP of Moira Deeming, who's described herself as the only independent uh, Liberal down there in the state because she refuses to leave the party. You know, she's seen some severe, cruel and vindictive opposition from the leadership of her own party. 
there's a time for Australians of all types to stand up to support women, to support sex-based rights and to bring back some equality back into our democracy. Yeah, 100%. And again, this is an important uh, foundational value. Uh, it, it's also a, a Jewish value. Um, we have uh, a, a law in, in the Torah, for example, that a man should not wear the garment of a woman or vice versa. Now, this is not a statement about fashion. Uh, this is uh, a statement about morality. Uh, our sages make commentary that those that don't follow this uh, lead a decline in morality. Uh, it also affirms gender identity, not gender fluidity. So you, you can see there's a great deal to learn and apply in modern circumstances that comes out of the wisdom and teaching over many centuries. And that's one of the things we do to apply uh, the values, the traditional values to modern circumstances. So um, we would say um, you affirm gender identity, not gender fluidity. Well, final question here. We've got uh, the Liberal Party has currently failed to support Moradimi. We've also got Catherine Deves, another fabulous speaker for women's rights. In fact, most people who are speaking up against, uh, for women are coming from the conservative side of politics. Hmm. Is it time for the Liberal Party or indeed just conservative parties in general to take this as the culture war point and to fight the ground for women as a unifying concept and to bring some hope back for Australia because someone has to fight. And it seems to me that this is a, a good place for conservative politics to go. Uh, Alexandra, I've been saying a very similar thing, that uh, there is an enormous issue here with enormous political potential for those who want to champion it, uh, whether it's uh, standing up for women, but also the closely related issue of uh, protecting children from the radical gender activism. Uh, and everywhere I go, parents, grandparents uh, are worried about this, and not just on the conservative side of politics, also the left, uh, many who, who would regard themselves as, as centre-left don't want to see, um, you know, their, their children and grandchildren uh, damaged by this sort of trend. So I would like to see the Liberal Party, or indeed any party, uh, champion those, those values, uh, protecting children, standing for women's rights, uh, enormous issue. And, uh, you know, it, it could even deliver elections for um, a party that stood up for that. Well, they are the values of Western civilization upon which this great country was built. David Adler, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for joining us here. Thank you so much, Alexandra. Great. And that's all we have time for. Catch you next week.